way through Esther, through this story. So kind of, it's a bit weird if you're just new and you're like, oh, we're starting in the middle of the story and who's Mordecai and who's uh, Esther? Um, if you haven't already, I would encourage you to just catch up on the bits, that the, the, the previous two sermons on this, to just kind of bring you up to speed. Um, yeah, otherwise it's a bit like starting a novel on the middle. I actually have a friend who, when she starts a book, reads the last chapter first to see how it ends. And anyway, that's just really weird. Don't do that with Esther. Um, that's just a kind of side point. Um, we're reading this story through these two lenses, uh, the lenses of God is at work even when he seems absent, which I think is probably a lot of us in our lives, a lot that can't seem that God is absent. We're not going around experiencing miracles all day, every day. Um, maybe sometimes you wonder, well, God, if you are at work, how are you at work? What are you up to? What are you doing? And the other lens is that God uses uh, imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plans. Um, and that's especially one of the lessons we're going to see today, that God uses imperfect people like you and me uh, to accomplish his perfect plans, um, which is a really incredible thing. And just to recap, we saw how Esther's woman and Mordecai, her guardian, he was her older cousin and he's uh, become her father figure. They are part of the Jews, part of God's people, uh, living in the Persian Empire, spread across the world 500 years before Jesus. And through this seemingly uh, chance set of events, Esther finds herself as the queen of the empire. And so on paper, she has no right to be there. Um, she's a Jew. She's not even, finds herself being a uh, queen. And then we see Mordecai, who uh, was the loyal servant of the empire, who saved the king's life, how he is kind of overlooked. And Haman, um, who is... The, the, you know, he's like the, the pantomime baddie, the boo, you know that one that we all boo at. Haman, he's his power grabbing, he's, he's racist, um, he, he's only out for his own good and his own wealth. Uh, he is promoted to the position of prime minister. And, and he doesn't waste any time to, um, to, to, to sign off on this plot to wipe out all the Jews. Um, it's this state-sponsored mass genocide is what it is. And today we're just picking up the story where we left off last week. The promise of death, destruction, and annihilation. Remember those three words we looked at last week that Haman didn't want to just kill the Jews. He wanted to kill them, to destroy them, and annihilate them. It's like a triple whammy. Um, the promise of that uh, is looming. Plans are emotion, and in fact, with, it, with them, destroy God's plan for salvation. Because if, if all the Jews are wiped out, then where will the Savior come from? And it seems like there's nothing that can be done to stop it. And so we pick up where we are this morning. But before we get into chapter 4, let me pray for us again and just ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word. Though it can seem strange and difficult to us at times, we know that that's your love letter to us. Lord, we want to understand it. Help us. Make this come alive to us. Apply it to our hearts so that we could be uh, change to become more like Christ and so we would see more of your beauty and more of your glory. We need your help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, something happened to me this week that it happens every now and again, <laughs> and uh, Haley tells me off for it, but it's not my fault. Do you know when you're driving somewhere and you drive and you arrive and you can't remember, you can't remember like the last three miles of the road, for example? That happens to me quite often. It's scary. Um, and you just you just can't, how did, I get, how did I get here? I have no memory of this. Maybe your mind has wandered. It's, you just kind of drive on autopilot. And sometimes this made me think, like sometimes that's what life is like, isn't it? We can drift, um, not really paying attention 
to the way that we're living, the way that we're driving the car, if you like. We're not really paying attention to what we're doing. We kind of just get where, and we can't really work out how we got there. Life kind of just passes us by sometimes. And sometimes, maybe even all the time, depending on your situation, you might find yourself asking, how did I end up here? What am I doing here? This was never part of my plan. And we especially tend to ask these kinds of questions when we find ourselves in situations that we don't want to be in, that we didn't plan to be in. Maybe it's a job that you find yourself in. It's ended up being your career, and you're like, how did I end up here? Maybe you live in a place that that you didn't plan living on. Or maybe you always thought that you would you know, you would grow up and get married and have a perfect life and you find yourself single and you wonder why that is. Or maybe your marriage isn't quite as rosy as you thought it would be. Maybe you even don't like parts of your own personality. Well, in chapter 4 of Esther, we find that our two main characters, Mordecai and Esther, are both in situations that they don't want to be in. I'm pretty sure if you ask Mordecai, Mordecai, would you like to be in this situation where your entire race of people is about to be wiped out? He would say no. And and particularly in the case of Esther, she's forced to make a decision about what to do with the position she has been placed in, placed in outside of... And as we examine this this part of the story, there's there's just really one lesson that that I want us to take away. And it's this. God has placed you where you are Because that's exactly where he needs you to be. God has placed you where you are because that's exactly where he needs you to be. And I know that this can be difficult to take in because we're not in good situations all the time, are we? A lot of the time we find ourselves in busy or hard times even. But God is at work even when we can't see him. Isn't this what we've been seeing the whole way through Esther so far? God doesn't work when we can't see him and he doesn't make mistakes. And so you are where you are because God has put you there and that's where he needs you to be. Position is a funny one and we're going to look at, we're going to look at three different positions in this chapter this morning as we explore this lesson. Uh, we're going to see a position of helplessness and a position of purpose. Everybody loves a three-point sermon, don't they? Um, it's easier for me. <laughs> a position of helplessness. Let's start there. Uh, we left off last week with Haman's plot to kill the Jews, kill all the Jews, annihilate them, destroy them. And uh, in fact, the, em- the emperor, uh, the king, King Ahasuerus, he gives Haman his authority, go and do it. And, and when Mordecai learns of this, chapter 4, verse 1, well, it's no surprise he reacts the way he does. He, he knows what it means. He feels the pain of it. It means the total destruction of all the people of God and and for him what must have seemed like an end to God's promises or at least the risk of an end to God's promises. And so he tears his clothes. A a pretty normal um, sign of grief in those days in that place. And uh, we, I mean, especially in Northern Ireland, we we don't really show our grief. Sure we don't. We we kind of like, you know, dress nicely and, and make sure that no one knows that we're in pain or grief is very dignified. But in other parts of the world, especially in the Middle East, people are, are very, um, very unashamed of their grief. And it's, a, it's publicly displayed, much the way Mordecai does here. So he tears his clothes. And instead of those nice, soft, well-made robes that he would have worn, he puts on rough, itchy, scratchy um, sackcloth. And he throws ashes over himself. 
And the sign that, that, sign that he is grieving, his inward grief is displayed outwardly. Especially when he then goes to the square, the public square in the city, in front of the city gate. Place of power and privilege. And, and there, what does he do? He wheels loudly so that everyone can see and hear his misery. He, he wants everyone to know how bad this thing is that is happening. And in this time of grief, Mordecai identifies with the people of God. He knows that actually by mourning publicly this way and grieving publicly this way, people are going to know exactly who he is and who he's part of. At the start of the story, he had hidden his Jewishness, but not anymore. Even if it means certain death, he says, I am going to identify with God's people. Verse 2 tells us that, that no one was allowed inside the city gate while they were in mourning and sackcloth. Remember, this is where Mordecai worked. He used to work in that position of power inside the civil service. And Mordecai has become, at least for now, an outsider. The people of God are, are under judgment from the empire. And identifying with, as one of them puts Mordecai under the same judgment. All the, across the 127 provinces of this vast empire from, remember the Himalayas all the way over to North Africa and the Mediterranean. All the Jews do the same. And what this is, is a picture of, of, the, of the deep grief of men and women who understand that they are under judgment. That, that, that death is coming and that they're in need of salvation. Now compare, compare this this deep-felt grief of Mordecai and all the other Jews. It's outwardly displayed. Compare that uh, to the contrast of what is going on inside. You see, it, it seems like Esther is in a bubble. It seems like she's in a cocoon. Um, she hasn't heard the news of Haman's evil plan. Even though she lives in the palace, she has no idea what's going on. It seems that being the, the queen of the Persian Empire actually doesn't give you that much freedom we can't imagine that, that she's allowed to wander around the city or, or go and do... I, I think it was probably a pretty controlled lifestyle that she led. She's cut off from the world. It reminded me of, of you know, the Crown TV show. When, when Diana gets engaged to Charles and she brought to the, the palace and then she realizes it's not a place of freedom, that she's confined to her quarters. Esther doesn't have TV or internet or she doesn't have... Facebook or Instagram. She doesn't know what's going on. And, and, and when her servant tells her about her, her, uh, about her cousin, her guardian Mordecai, she's upset that he is expressing himself this way. Uh, she, she, but she doesn't yet know what is going on. Because there's two levels of grief here. Mordecai is grieved at the impending death of all God's people. And Esther is grieved that Mordecai is upset. And for now at least, Esther responds in a very empire way, or should I say a very Northern Irish way. She sends him some new clothes and she says, clean yourself up. <laughs> Mordecai, it's not proper to behave this way. Yourself cleaned up and then you can come back on the inside again. Listen, here's my credit card. Go and get yourself a new suit. Go and get yourself a haircut. Go to the spa, whatever you need to do, then come back and be on the inside. Just get yourself sorted out. Very Northern Irish way to deal with grief, isn't it? To deal with, uh, to, to, to deal with uh, pain. To, de to deal with the fact that we're under judgment. There, there, don't cry. We cop a tail sort of out. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the first gathering I shared that when I was in primary school, uh, 
a car ran over my foot. <laughs> and I vividly remember my mum making me a cup of tea. <laughs> like, wee sugary tea, that'll sort you out. <laughs> I need to go to the hospital, mum. <laughs> I did go to the hospital, but I had tea first. Like, that was sort of out. Nothing wrong with a cup of tea. A cup of tea and a chat, that's probably what really sorts you out. But we try to deal with inward problems with outward solutions. Like we try, we, at the very least, I'll make, my, I'll make sure I look okay on the outside so that no one knows what's going on the inside. Everybody in the world knows that death is inevitable. That's what this last year has shown us, right? Everyone in the world knows that death is an inevitability. But instead of facing up to death and thinking, this is coming my way, what what happens after that, or what should I do about this? What do we do? We go shopping or work. It's like we, we drive along the road not paying attention to where we're going or what's going on around us. Outward niceness to cover up inner pain. That's how we deal with things. And, and what, I'm, what I'm trying to show here is that, that Mordecai's situation and the Jewish situation of helplessness and impending doom mirrors our position of helplessness without Jesus. And when faced with the coming judgment on those who are outside of Jesus, what do we do? Do we respond by trying to cover it up with new clothes? Do we respond by trying to make ourselves look better? What happens when we sin and disobey God? How do we respond? Do we try to put a band-aid on the problem, cover it up? And we cover it up in all kinds of ways, don't we? You know, we... Um, Maybe come on the prayer meeting on Zoom, we like pray really loudly or, or pray really long prayers or maybe we give the charity or the church or we do all these things. We, we, we don't want anyone to recognize that what's going on the inside. But the truth is, without Christ, we are in a position of helplessness. And we need to do what Mordecai does, don't we? We need to recognize our need of a saviour, Kai, does just that, and he turns to Queen Esther. And this is where we see the next position played out in this story. This is a position of mediation. Mordecai sends his messenger back to Esther, and, and, and he fills her in with all the details. Esther, I can't, be, I can't believe you don't know what's going on. He, he sends her like a copy of, I imagine it's a scroll, but he sends her the text of this. He said, look what's going on here, Esther. Read this and understand Step in. Listen to what he says in verse 8, or what he tells his messenger to say to her. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. Susa is just the capital city. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Notice he uses the words her people. It's almost like the author's setting up a mini cliffhanger here. Will Esther recognize the Jews as her people? Mordecai, outside the gate, is visibly and audibly in his mourning is a Jew. All over the empire, Jews are openly mourning. And because of that, they are identifying as Jews. They know that by mourning this way that they're going to be put to death. And, and, and by saying, will you intervene for your people, Esther? Mordecai is given an invitation to identify with God's people. And understandably, Esther refuses. 
I mean, the, the great king, Ahasuerus, isn't someone you walk straight up to. Remember we looked at what kind of man this was way back in chapter 1? He's a man who likes everyone to know that he's in charge. You have to be invited into his presence. And there's no way that, that a woman, she is the queen, could just approach him. This is the kind of man he is. To approach the king is to risk your life. Because if the king doesn't hold out this golden scepter to you, you'd just be put to death on the spot. Isn't this just such a, I don't want to get back into this, but isn't this just such an overreaction? He's like overplays his hand at every point, this guy, doesn't he? I will hold out my scepter to you and accept you. And Esther says, Mordecai, you're asking me to risk. And of course, Mordecai knows this. Everybody knows the law. But Mordecai also knows that Esther, risking her life is what is required for the people to be saved. But Esther also reveals another level of hopelessness here. See, the king hasn't sent for her in a month. And we probably don't have to spend too much time thinking about for her because he's probably been busy sleeping with other women in the harem. As many as he wants, as often as he wants. This is what the empire does. This is what this man does. And Esther been set to one side. Like you do with any trophy, you put it on a shelf and let it gather dust. And this is where poor Esther finds herself. Look, Mordecai, to go into the king normally would be risking my life, but, but especially now because the, I have no value here anymore. Seems hopeless, doesn't it? But Mordecai doesn't give up. And he responds to her this, uh, the next time. And, and it's here we come to the most famous words in, in this whole book. And you probably heard them before, but I'm going to read them again. Verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them, that's the, the servants, to reply to Esther. This is what he says to her. Do not think to king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai says, Esther, you need to face facts here, please. <laughs> I mean, you might think you can't do this because you escape. But you're not going to escape. Just, just because you live in the king's house, you think Haman's going to let that slide? You will die. Without rescue, we're all going to die. Every single Jew in the empire will die. And, and he also says something to her that we might not expect him to say, doesn't he? You see, he doesn't say, Esther, listen, if you don't do this, then it's, it's over for God's people. We're all doomed. Game over. He says, Esther, if you don't do this, deliverance will come from another place. You see, Mordecai has grasped that it's not possible for the people of God to ultimately perish. Mordecai grasps that God has promised and he will save his chosen covenant people. It's like he said to Esther, whom God has chosen for himself, no one can, can annihilate. Mordecai is preacher here, 500 years before Jesus. God will bring salvation to his people and when you're one of his people, you will always be safe, even if your entire race is annihilated. 
What does Jesus say to us? He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that class? And so Esther has to make a choice. Is she going to be part of God's covenant, God and his salvation plan, or is she going to identify with the empire and the world? And it's interesting that this identity crisis that she faces here, uh, Esther is the only person in the entire story that is given two names. Way back in, in chapter 2, verse 7, we see that she is called Hadassah. That's her Persian name. But she's also called Esther, her Hebrew name. And now she has to decide, which is it going to be? Which identity are you going to embrace? All this wasn't happening by chance. He trusts that God is behind it all. He says, Esther, God is behind all this. And who knows, but, but God has put you here in this position, in the palace for this very moment. Esther, don't you realize that, that God has given you a part to play in his plan? And what happens next is the turning point of the whole story. Because in my mind, it's at this moment that Esther, sure, she was the queen by title and the queen of the Persians by marriage to the king. But here she becomes queen of the Jews, queen of her people through decision and action and identifying with her people. Esther chooses God. She trusts God's promises. She trusts God's sovereignty. And she decides to identify with the Jews, to risk her life, and with God's help, bring them to salvation. And her reply to Mordecai is just simply He says, I will do it. And if I perish, I perish. Can you imagine saying that? I'm going I'm to trust God. I'm going to follow God. And if I die, I die. Esther embraces her God-given role and represents her people against the power and might and authority of the entire empire at risk to her own life. And she doesn't do it with a posture of authority and power uh, over the enemies of God's people because she doesn't have that. But what does she do have? She has a posture of humility and obedience to God even in the face of death. I love that, I, I love that there are 14 times in this whole book, this whole story, that, that Esther is called Queen Esther and all but one of them come after this moment. <laughs> it's like the author wants us to realize this is the moment she becomes queen of her people. And you see, what we have here that foreshadows our king. We all want to skip ahead and put ourselves in, in the story. We do. And in some ways, this is our story. But we are not the heroes of our story. The hero of the story here is Esther. And she is this beautiful picture of our ultimate hero, the Lord Jesus. Esther is the queen who foreshadows our king. Esther represents Christ in the story the mediator, our mediator, the one who stands in the stead of her people, uh, who points forward to the one who stands in our stead. Think about it. A, a weak and vulnerable believer going into the, the place of ultimate power and judgment in the world to plead for the deliverance of her people. How can we not think about Jesus? Who in weakness goes into the place of judgment to plead for the deliverance of his people knowing it means possible death selflessly declares if I perish I perish Jesus knowing that it means certain death selflessly declares not your not my will be done but yours and just like we see in Queen Esther our mediator 
King Jesus resigns his life for the salvation of his people. Esther bravely faces the possibility this our greater mediator bravely faces the certainty of death. Our Lord Jesus chose to identify with us, his people, knowing that it meant his death. We were facing death and destruction under the judgment of God. And Jesus says, I'm with them. I'm on their side. I, I, know, that that means, I know that means facing judgment and death and destruction, but I love them and I'm identifying. So he gives up his position of power and authority to become one of us, to plead for our salvation. Jesus faces death on our behalf. This is what Jesus has done for me and what he's done for you. We want to be like Esther. We want to be Esther. But we need to first recognize that, that we're like Mordecai and the other Jews here, helpless in the face of coming death, able only to prevention of our Savior. And that's what a Christian is, isn't it? That's all, that's, that's all any of us are. We're all just uh, sinners who are trusting on the intervention of our Savior on our behalf. That's what we are. <laughs> Not one follower of Jesus who has ever lived, who has saved himself. We're all just relying on what Jesus has done. And, and actually, uh, this, um, this week, uh, we, I had a little bit of an elder review. You, every three years or so, we kind of review each other and just, you know, make sure we're doing okay and, and challenge each other and push each other. It was a beautiful, lovely, encouraging time of rebuke and encouragement. But um, in some of our language around elders, uh, it says this, we are all just people who daily cling to the gospel promises found only in Jesus Christ. That's all any of us have. Just daily cling to the gospel promises of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, it's only by trusting in him and his mediation on your behalf that you can be saved from that coming judgment. So be like Mordecai. Be grieved about your sin, but, but also plead with the mediator to save you. And he will. Because he's even more reliable than brave Esther. And now, only after we've seen how Esther is this picture of Christ, now can we begin to see what example she sets for us. And that this morning, this third position, the position of purpose. Uh, when, I, when I do have those times where I drive somewhere and can't remember how I got there, I can't remember that section of road, I always say a quick prayer of thanks. <laughs> Thank you, God, for keeping me safe. Um, God keeps me safe despite my own stupidity in driving because um, the truth is that, that it's only God who's kept my car on the road in those times even though I am the one that's driving so I am driving but God is in control um, and in some ways this is like Esther's decision here you see God has, God has brought her through extraordinary circumstances uh, from a lowly Jewish girl to being the dignified queen of her people so we talk about this idea of God's sovereignty. And that word means that God is in control of everything. It's one of the main themes of this entire book. And here we see that, that Esther still has to play her part in his plan to save his people. And in his infinite wisdom, this is how God often works in the world. So all the way through this book, we've been asking, God, if you are at work in the world, how do you work? Well, here's one of the answers. God often works through his people. His sovereign plan that can't ever be turned off course. 
It's not like deviated, where it's like, you know, that you're on your Google Maps, where it's like rerouting. But it's always on course, worked out through his people who choose to obey him. It's class. And this is something that I want to be really clear about. God's sovereignty, that God is in control, and human agency that we have decisions to make are not competing ideas. God's sovereignty and human agency are not competing ideas. And sometimes I hear people, I talk to people, or maybe you've heard similar things that will say, well, if God is sovereign, if he's really ultimately in control, then why? Firstly, I would say, well, why would you pray to a God that's not sovereign? But anyway, that's a different conversation. Or, or if, if God is sovereign, then, then why do we need to share the gospel? Why do we need to evangelize? But this is a false dichotomy. These two things aren't pitted against each other. You see, God in his sovereignty chooses to use human beings like me and you to fulfill his plans. In other words, God uses imperfect people for perfect plans. It was through somebody sharing the gospel with me that I put my trust in Jesus. <laughs> I'm guessing it's the same for all of you. Whether it's parents or a friend or a preacher or or whatever, someone down the pub, who knows what it was. But, but God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plans. And if one of the main messages of Esther is that God is in control, the other is that he uses people to fulfill his plans. You see, knew that, and Esther had to realize that, yes, of, God, of course God is in control. Of course he will rescue his people. But what if his plan was to put Esther in that palace for just this moment, so he could use her to rescue his people. There are no mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. And so now we can put ourselves, put ourselves in Esther's shoes. God is, is completely in control. Turned off course. Uh, but what if he has put you where you are so that he can use you to fulfill his perfect plan? What position have you been put in for such a time as this? Not, not as a savior, of course, but as one who points to the savior. Now, maybe you're saying, well, I'm not a queen and I don't live in a palace. I don't think that's the point of the story. <laughs> I think we're severely missing what's going on here used if we're in high positions of government or married to a, a monarch. I think we're meant to think about who are the people you influence in your life who need to hear the gospel? Who is it in your life? We all have people we influence. Is it your work colleagues? People you maybe spend most of your time with? Is it your friends? And we don't think about it often, but, but the, the, these people, their lives depended on Esther Identifying with God's people and speaking up on, on, on their behalf. What, what if your friends' eternal lives depend on you being willing to identify with God's people and speaking up on his behalf? Have you ever thought about that? Think about it. You, you might just be a matter of life and death for them that you share Jesus with them. Do you think it's random that you have the neighbors you have? Do you think it's a matter of chance that you work in the office or the coffee shop or the school that you work in? God has placed you exactly where you are because that's where he needs you to be. A friend of mine wrote a book 
um, about sharing the gospel. Uh, and it's called uh, Friend of Sinners, if you want to read it. It's a great book. It's about Jesus and how he was the friend of sinners. And in that book, he says, if you move into a house next door to non-Christians, it's because God is working in their lives. And I'm convinced that's the way we should be thinking about these things. If I move into a house and the people next door to me are non-Christians and I'm a Christian, then it's because God is working in their lives. What if, like Esther, God has put you where you are with the people around you that you have around you because in his sovereignty, he has planned that you would be the one who brings them to salvation in Jesus. To share the joy that you have in Jesus. To share the hope you have in Jesus. To share the goodness you found in Jesus. And notice the first thing that Esther does here. The first part of her plan. Yet We'll have to wait the next week to see if she actually does end or not. Um, she tells Mordecai, go and get all the Jews in the city and fast for me. Because I'm going to do this and I might die. I want you to go and fast for me. And this, for me, tells us two things. Firstly, that we are in this together, that we're not alone. And secondly, that we must pray. You see, God has given us, each other, the church, to be on mission together. To share the burden and together bring the burden. That means that, that in our church we have missional communities. For some of you who don't know our church, we have missional communities. These are uh, uh, groups of Christians who are part of our church who, who meet in each other's homes throughout the week and share lives together. So that means that in our missional communities we can share the opportunities we have, the gospel opportunities we have. We can talk about the people in our lives that we just want to, know, want to come to know Jesus and we can pray for these people together. So why missional community, why not pray by name for the people you want to know Jesus? That's a really good practice to, to, to get in the habit of doing. And, and actually, it's why on when, when we do have our prayer Zooms every other week, and we'll do it tomorrow night, that every time we pray for our lost friends and family. Why not, with each other, talk about the position you find yourself in? Whether you like it, whether you don't like it. Talk about how maybe how difficult it is to be a Christian in your work or to speak up and share Jesus. Why not support each other as brothers and sisters as we follow this example of Queen Esther? We're not in this alone and we need to pray. Now listen, and I'm nearly finished. I'm not going to lie because sometimes sharing Jesus is, and identifying with God's people will involve risk. Now, in Belfast, <laughs> it's not going to involve uh, risk of uh, someone deciding whether or not to kill you. It might do, I don't know. But probably more likely for us, it, it's, it's a risk of jeopardizing a relationship, or a risk of looking silly, or a risk of being unpopular. And in these moments of risk, we can just remember the example of Queen Esther. You see, we like God's sovereignty when he rescues us from really good. God, I like your plans for me or this, this, and this. But, but here what we see in Esther is that sometimes God's sovereignty and his good purposes puts us in danger. That, if God's sovereignty put Esther in a place of danger. But her example should challenge us and encourage us. I perish, I perish. You see, Esther realized in this moment that the mission is more important than her comfort and security. And that Queen Esther, who 
over this past week, I've just come to love and respect. Can't wait to, wait to meet her someday. Um, I can't imagine that she said this, you know, standing like a superhero, like, you know, I'm up for the job. I, I think she probably said this with feeling sick. You know that feeling you get of like nerves, like feeling sick, shaky voice, maybe with tears in her eyes. Even the Lord Jesus, before he dies, in the garden, the night before he dies, knowing all that lies ahead of him, the, the pain and the torture and the suffering, the humiliation, the being, the being rejected by God, all of that, he, he prays through tears and he sweats drops of blood. And so listen, sometimes, in fact, most times, I think faith looks like obedience with, with shaky knees. I know, I know a lot of you in this room can identify with that. <laughs> Obedience with shaky knees. Maybe what we're seeing here with Esther. And that's okay. Because God goes with us and he honors our obedience. And we're able to do it because we know that the mission is more important than our comfort and our security. Most of the time, uh, we don't mind uh, loving people and serving them when we choose to do it. When it's on our terms, well, when I have enough money or when I'm on that mission trip, I want to have the energy or I have the time. But what about when we find ourselves like Esther in situations that we didn't choose? What do we do then? I imagine that most of us have times in our lives when we wonder about or, or maybe even resent the position we find ourselves in. God, I wish you could just take this away from me. Like Jesus, doesn't it? The night before he dies. Circumstances. And maybe it's a difficult situation at work. Maybe it's a neighbor that you can't get along with. Or maybe it's a marriage that hasn't turned out to be as blissful as you thought it would be. I, I don't know. And sometimes it's hard being patient and loving, never mind openly sharing the gospel. Well, maybe this morning you need a Mordecai to come alongside you and remind you that you are where you are, not by chance, but because God has placed you there. There's this moment in the rings. Um, I assume most people are at least a little bit familiar with this story. Lord of the Rings, when, when, it, when it, it seems like the weight of carrying the ring has is, is become too much for Frodo. And they're lost, the, the group are lost in the mines of Moria, and they're deep in the dark. And Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. And Gandalf, in his wisdom, he, he replies, he says, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to do is to, is to decide what to do with the time that is given us. I love that. There's so much truth in this. Gandalf is, is like Mordecai coming alongside Esther and saying, listen, you have to decide whether or not you're going to use the circumstance that, that God has put you in for the greater good. I know this is not good. None of us want to be here. And so let me challenge you and ask you, what are you going to choose today? Are you going to recognize that God has placed you exactly where he needs you to be? Are you going to choose to identify with God's people even if it puts you at risk? Are you going to choose to take opportunities that God has given you to share the gospel and lead people to Jesus? To share the joy you have in him? Share the and here's what I want to finish with. I know I've gone a little bit long, um, but this is important. 
no one is too small or insignificant to be used by God for the good of his kingdom. Esther had no right to be where she was. On paper, by the empire standards, she had no right to be where she was. And I think that insecurity is often one of the main things that stops us being used by God. I, I don't know what to say. I'm not very confident. How could I speak out? I don't have all the answers. I, I don't know the Bible that well. I don't even pray that much. Do you know how ter- bad a Christian I am? <laughs> Listen, I want to say this. If God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world, like the Bible tells us he has in Ephesians chapter 1, if God has chosen you and raised you from death to life in Jesus, then we can certainly say with confidence for his purposes. If you believe in Jesus, then no matter your circumstances, God can use you. Before, I, I, before we started our first week in Esther, I was chatting to a friend and, who loves this book and has studied it a bit, and she said to me, she said, no one can read Esther's story and not believe that they don't have a part to play in God's plan. No one can read Esther's story and believe that they don't have a part to play. That's you this morning. I want you to be so encouraged. You don't have to be insecure in Jesus. He has you where he has for a reason because he needs you, not someone else, you to be there. You're not too young. You're not too immature. You're not too unimportant. You're not too old. You're not in the wrong place. You're not too unqualified. If you are in Jesus, then you're a part of God's plan for the salvation. And, and the beautiful thing is that when, when we follow this example of Esther, we actually find that we're following the example of Jesus who gave up his life for us. I think we can all get on board with that, following Jesus, can't we? God has placed you where you are because that's exactly where he needs you to be. So, are you willing to be used by him?